that we're all going to be involved in. It's a different kind of lifestyle than what we were used to that we grew up with. The lifestyle that all of us naturally grew up in was a lifestyle of law, rules and regulations, and of course lies and deceptions when you didn't keep the rules and regulations. Rather than that kind of lifestyle be continued, God has given us a new lifestyle. A brand new lifestyle that He has established for us called a lifestyle of grace and truth. Now when did that lifestyle begin for you? Just think back to that moment in your life when you recognized that it was impossible for you to save yourself in any capacity. And you turn to God. You ask Him to save you. You exercise that thing that we were talking about in the previous chapter. You exercise that little tiny bitty bit of faith that God gave you. Because you wanted to believe that a power greater than yourself could restore you to sanity, to put it in AA terms. Or you wanted to believe that a power greater than you could pull you out of the fire, wherever that fire may have been. When you wanted to believe that, the Spirit produced in you the faith that you exercised. And you began a new lifestyle at that moment. Now there's various ways that people have described that. The Bible describes it in different ways. Theologians call it a conversion experience. Others call it being saved. Others call it, Jesus actually referred to it as being born again. However you describe it, however, whatever you use to to describe it or whatever you call it. It was the beginning of a marathon race for you. The beginning of a brand new lifestyle. Now, you may not have been consciously aware of that at the time, but from the scriptures, we know there were a bunch of things that happened to you. The moment you exercise that faith. The moment you called out, a bunch of things happened to you that unfortunately you're not aware of in your experience, but the Bible describes in detail what happens to you when you were, as Jesus put it, born again. It's at that moment that you actually become a brand new person. Not the same old person that you've always thought of yourself as being. But you are a brand new person that God created in Christ Jesus. And that brand new person you are looks like Jesus. Did you know that? 
looks just like Jesus. Now you say, well, that's kind of strange for me to look like Jesus. Jesus was a man, and I'm a woman. I know it's hard for you ladies sometimes to identify with that. But remember that what Paul says is that in Christ Jesus, there's neither male nor female. So this person that God has made you to be is not restricted by gender. Isn't that an interesting thought? Especially in all the dialogue that's going on today about wondering if you're a boy or a girl. In Christ Jesus, there's neither male nor female. Bond or free. Jew or Gentile. You see, your identity in Christ Jesus is divine. And it's brand new. That's why we're told in the Scriptures that you have a new name. A new name means you have a new identity. And that identity is in Christ. Now what are the personal benefits of that? They're tremendous. Because in Christ Jesus, you are absolutely secure in God's love. Did you know that? Yeah, you're absolutely secure. Because you're in Christ, and Christ is in the Father, and Christ is in you, there is nothing or no one that can get to you without the permission of a God who loves you and cares for you continuously. That makes you secure in His love. You're secure in the fact that He accepts you. You're secure in the fact that He's forgiven you. But you're also important. You're also significant in Christ Jesus. You're not just an important person anymore. You are a very important person. You are actually a VIP in Christ. Did you know that? Yeah, you are. Because you are God's handiwork. His creation created in Christ Jesus under good works that He ordained that you're going to do. You're important to His eternal plan. And on top of that, your life now has eternal value and meaning. You know, a lot of people think that they've lost their meaning. Well, my life doesn't mean anything, you know. And they compare themselves to other people and they come, in, come into that and say, well, my life's not as meaningful as somebody else's life. No. Your life has a specific meaning that God has created you to accomplish. And you're adequate. That means you're able. You're able to do whatever God has called you to do to fulfill your purpose. And I might even go so far as to say, you will do it because God ordained that you should do it. And so there's tremendous personal benefits when we begin this marathon race. And as we've studied so far in Hebrews, it's begun 
simply by that little bitty faith. That little teeny tiny bit of faith that we exercise puts you in this race. And now, our author in the Hebrews, which I believe was Paul, is telling us what we're going to need to run that race. Because you see, the race begins the moment you are born again, and it continues until the moment you enter into heaven. And so he's going to tell us what it's going to take now. What's it going to take for us to be successful in this marathon race? To experience the victory of this marathon race? And it all boils down to one word, one biblical term that I use, and it's used right here, and that is hope. See, you enter into this new lifestyle of grace and truth by faith. But it is hope that sustains you in that lifestyle. As Paul said in Romans chapter 8, we are all saved in the realm of hope. What does that mean? What we're going to be and what we're going to experience, we haven't realized yet. We're hoping for it. See, even though you're no longer the same person you've always thought of yourself as being, you don't yet realize what you are fully what you will be completely because as long as we live in this realm of time as long as we live in this physical realm we are waiting right now for what will come in the future and I want to just describe that to you just just briefly, I think it's important that we have kind of a brief understanding of what lies ahead. What lies ahead as far as God is concerned is the experience of victory in Christ Jesus. Of you winning this race, this marathon race you're on. And so there's a tremendous amount of rejoicing lying ahead. Now what scares us about winning this race is you have to die to go to heaven. Did you know that? See, I'm not really scared about death. It's that dying business that I'm not excited about. Right? We have to die to go to heaven. And that brings us to what our author talked about back in chapter 2 as the fear of death that put us in bondage all our lifetime, right? Jesus has removed that fear of death for us. So death for us is not something to be feared. It's not something that terrorizes us, but rather something that liberates us. Now, don't worry about it. I'm not going to pass out any Kool-Aid for you here today. But I want you to understand what lies ahead in your future. What lies ahead in your future is joy unspeakable and full of glory. What lies ahead in your future is 
a rapture of which you can't even describe as you enter into heaven. You not only are you out of this sin-cursed world that is falling apart at the seams. You ever notice that? You go out and buy a brand new car, drive it for a couple years, what happens to it? Hmm? Yeah, it falls apart, some of them quickly. Everything in this world grows old and falls apart. Physicists call that the second law of thermodynamics. And when it grows old and falls apart, it causes us suffering. But not only are you living in a world that groans and travails together in pain until now, falling apart, but you live in bodies that are also growing old and falling apart, which causes also a great deal of suffering. Now, can you imagine being out of this world in which everything grows old and falls apart is one thing, but the really good news about that is you're going to get a new body that is fashioned just like Jesus' body that he had when he rose again from the dead. A body that's not limited by time and space. A body that's not growing old and falling apart. But a brand new body. Now, that's the end of the race we're on. That's the finish line, if you would. So how are we going to run this race? Well, our author tells us, and he gives us here, some key important ingredients of what it's going to take to run this race. And the reason he uses it, the analogy of a marathon race is because it's a long race. Not a sprint, not a dash. It's the rest of your life. So this lifestyle of grace and truth we're talking about is a brand new lifestyle, a brand new way to live your life. And what is going, what's going to be required to live your life in the sin-cursed world and sin-cursed body is what he refers to as hope, what the Bible calls joy. See, biblical hope is simply a joyful, confident expectation of your future. That's what biblical hope is. And what does it do for us? We've already touched on it. What it does is it gives us endurance. Now, I hesitate because I've used this analogy a lot, but... I hesitate to, to remind you of the study that psychologists did, behavioral psychologists did on a strain of white rats illustrating hope. They took this wild strain of rats and one by one they dumped them in this vat of water and timed them to see how long they would swim before they died gave up and drowned. That seems kind of mean, doesn't it? Well, that's what behavioral psychologists do to animals. But that wasn't the end of it. On an average, they swam two or three minutes, gave up, said to heck with it, and drowned. So they took another batch of this same strain of white rats 
They put them in the same water. And they knew from the previous experience about how long they had swim. And so after about two minutes, they retrieved that rat out of the water, put him in a cage and fed him. And they did that for the whole group. Now the next day, they took those rats who had been retrieved and fed that same group. And they put them back in the water. This is where the experiment turned really ugly. Because on an average, those rats that had that one trial learning swam for 22 hours before they died. What made the difference? One trial learning experience of hope. They had hope. See, what you're going to need living in this world and a lifestyle of grace and truth is hope. Hope is what keeps you keeping on. Hope is what causes you to get up the next day despite your present circumstances. You're going to have to have that endurance produced by hope. Now the scriptures are very clear on this. That when you believe. What God says is true. As Paul prayed for in Romans 15.13. When you believe. What God says is true. About you or anything else. There is created in you. This sense of hope by the Spirit. Remember, hope, like faith, is also a fruit of the Spirit. It's what God produces in you. So when you believe what He says is true about you, a hope is presented or produced in you that gives you endurance to keep on keeping on. So Paul prayed in Romans 15, verse 13, Now the God of all hope Fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, there's the resource that's necessary to run this marathon race we're on. It's that hope. It's what gives you the endurance. And so our author tells us here in verse 2, chapter 12, we're to fix our eyes on Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith, He's not just a grand example of what a lifestyle of grace and truth looks like. He's the one that makes it happen. So you look at looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy, that hope, that was set before Him, endured the cross despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He is God's executive authority now. What caused him to be able to do that? That hope. Now he goes on in the next verse to give us a little bit more information on that. In verse 3 
or in verse 4 rather, for consider him that endured such contradictions of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. See, there's a good reason to look to Jesus and his example. It's not just to show us what a lifestyle of grace and truth looks like, although it does. It's looking unto Jesus to strengthen us through hope. Consider him for a moment, just for a brief moment, in his lifestyle. Even a casual reading of the Gospel of John will reveal to you how Jesus was under continual opposition from the religious people of his day. Did you know that? From the moment he started his ministry, they opposed him. They came against him. They slandered him. They lied about him. They sought to destroy him. His marathon race, though by comparison, is fairly quick. Three and a half years before they crucified him was filled with complete opposition. Total. Everywhere he went, every act he performed, there was opposition against him on a spiritual level, on a personal, relational level, on a physical level. Everywhere he went, he was opposed in his message was countered. Consider him, lest you be weary and faint in your own minds. Now, he's not just talking about us comparing ourselves to Jesus in that regard. Even though in the next verse, he goes on to say, now you haven't shed any blood on your marathon race yet. That is, you haven't given up your life. They haven't killed you yet. This world we're living in, these bodies we're living in, haven't killed you yet. Did Jesus. Now what he's saying that for is to tell us essentially that we have exactly the same resources Jesus had while he was here. And what are those resources? You remember he gave testimony himself saying, What you see me do is what the Father does. What you hear me say is what the Father says. Well, how did that work? Through the same Spirit that you have living inside of that new person God has made you to be, that same Spirit that was on Jesus is in you. And that Spirit is what communicated to Jesus the words the Father would speak. That Spirit is what communicated to Jesus the things the Father would do. That's the same for you. There's no difference. He is your example. Just as Jesus could hear the Father and follow His direction and His leadership, so can you. 
Just as Jesus could accomplish the Father's will on this earth, so do you. How? By means of that indwelling Spirit living inside of you. See, this fulfills what Jesus promised to His disciples when He said, I'm not going to leave you like orphans floundering around in this world that's falling apart at the seams in those bodies of yours that are falling apart. I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send another comforter to you. Even the Spirit of Truth. He is going to teach you. He is going to guide you into all truth. He is going to take up mine and reveal it to you. He is going to glorify me or make me real. He will show you things to come. You see, He is actively involved in you right now as you run this marathon race of grace and truth. So we are not without resources. Even though the race is difficult, even even though it has a lot of obstacles and opposition, we are not at all without resources. We have had every resource we need to run this race to victory. For that reason, we need to celebrate. We need to celebrate what God has done for us in Christ. And that we're going to do right now as we close our service with communion. Communion is a celebration. So those of you who are going to serve communion to us, please get it ready for us and bring it out. But this communion that we're about to observe, some people call it the Lord's Supper, is just that. It's a memorial, symbolic meal of celebration. Now, even though it was announced and set in somewhat of a dark and gloomy setting, it's really a celebration of victory. On the night before Jesus was crucified, He introduced this meal to us to remind us of what He's done for us and what He will do for us. Now, the neat thing about this memorial meal is what Jesus called it. Each one of the the two components of the meal, the bread and the wine, those two components are components of victory. Did you know that? Yeah. And they illustrate to us the fact that we have the victory through Jesus. Now it's all set in the context of beginning and actually signing. When you go buy a house or a car for that matter, remember when you sign on the dotted line and you enter into that contract, that's called a closing, right? On the night before Jesus was crucified, he had a closing with his disciples in the upper room. And what was that closing on? It was a new contract between God and humanity. And Jesus closed it that night. That new contract, or new covenant as it's called, 
is a covenant of victory. It's a covenant that says you are not going to lose. It's impossible for you to lose. God won't let you lose. That's what the contract was all about. Now, Jeremiah prophesied that contract years before Jesus actually ratified it, telling Israel that the days are coming where God's going to make a new contract with you. And he gives us three elements of that contract. Three pieces to that contract, if you will, to be fulfilled. First of all, he says, God is going to write His law, His righteous demands, on your heart and put it in your inward parts. What that means, essentially, is God Himself is going to make you behave to keep the law to do what's right. He is going to cause you to fulfill His law. The second term of that contract is you're not going to have need that someone says, you're not going to need someone to teach you about me. Because I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. What's he talking about? He's talking about an intimate, close, personal relationship on an individual basis. What he's saying is, you and him are going to have your own relationship. I hope by now you realize that Christianity is not a religion. Biblical Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. A relationship between you and God and a relationship between you and everybody else. So the second term of this new covenant, God says, I'm going to have a personal relationship with you. Covenant. The third is simply your sins and your iniquities. All the stuff you try to hide. All the stuff you're ashamed of. All the stuff you screwed up. God said, I will remember it no more. Now, how in the world could God forget all that stuff? Come on up, guys. How in the world could He forget all that stuff? I know. When somebody screws up, come on up here. Somebody screws up and I... Even if they say, I'm sorry, and I tell them, you know, I uh, forgive them. I never forget it. Do you? If somebody hurts you and somebody screws up, you're always going to remember that. Well, how in the world could God forget all the times I've screwed up? Here's the most amazing thing about the New Covenant. The only way He could forget is to create you a brand new person who never has screwed up. Just like Jesus. Thank you again for listening. If you want more access to Alpha Ministries teaching, you can like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and visit our website. 
All times and dates for services and other events are on our website listed in the show notes. 